Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. I thought we were going to have a, a vocal reading there. Um, you know, it's funny, when I, during the week, as I'm preparing my message, I study and I write and I rewrite and I study and I rewrite some more and I, you know, draft and I go through all this big process. And um, <coughs> even last night I was redrafting and rewriting and what have you. And um, then I get up here this morning and guess what happens? Blank. It's like, like when I was a kid and I would study for a test and I'd walk in the classroom and like, I forgot everything I studied for. Um, and, and the really funny thing is that I know that all the studying, all the writing I did, and I have an outline, I really do, but whatever I say is going to sound something way different. It's not going to be like the outline, so it's kind of funny. Anyway, so let, let's pray for a minute that uh, God's will would be done here. So Heavenly Father, we just uh, do, we, we come to you, we humbly come to you, we bend our knees before you and confess that Jesus is Lord and Lord of all. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would be present with us, that you would give us open hearts and open minds, that we might hear you and see you and experience you, and then we would grow in our knowledge of you. And I pray that my words would be your words, that you would use to edify these, your children, to reassure them of your certain love now as well as in eternity. We pray all that in Jesus' precious name, amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 11 and the story of Lazarus. Can you hear me now? Nope. How about now? Can you hear me now? Okay, good. All right, good. So this morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 11 and the story of Lazarus, and we're really going to focus in on Martha um, and, and what happens there. But the first thing I have to ask you is, do you believe? And when you say yes, if I went around the room and I'd say, what is it you believe? I'd probably get a lot of different answers. Not wrong or right answers, but different answers. Maybe somebody would say, well, we just confess what we believe in the Apostles' Creed. Someone else would say, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. I believe in God. And there would be a lot of different answers. And maybe some of us, if we were really honest, would say, well, honestly, right now my heart hurts. And there's some things going on in my life. And I believe, but I don't know. I mean... I'm not sure what I believe anymore because life is way different than what I could possibly imagine. And I never imagined this. And this hurts so much. And I don't understand how God fits into this. That'd be some of us. But there would be different answers. And I want you to imagine, if you could, that imagine me and that I have a boat. And I'm in a boat. And my boat is my belief. And all my beliefs around me, and I go through sailing about life in this boat of beliefs. Can you put the first picture up there? So imagine this is my boat of beliefs, okay? This is a famous thing when you're making a boat that's called laying down of the keel. It's the most significant part of making a boat. And when you lay a keel with a boat like this, or big ships you see come into the ship channel, they actually celebrate the laying of the keel. You've seen maybe in TV or movies or whatever when they pop a bottle of champagne on the boat as it's getting ready to sail. That's the only other time that they celebrate the way they do the keels laying down. But the laying down of the keel is a bigger deal than the sailing. It's a big part because this is the foundation of your boat, of my boat of beliefs. Can you go to the next picture, please? So I don't know if you can tell, but this guy, he's pointing to what? He's pointing to some holes in the boat where water's going to get in, where the, the boards don't meet together. And if 
And if my faith is the keel of my boat, and I have all these other beliefs that connect to the keel, some of my beliefs are not connected to God's. Some of my beliefs are inadequate and inaccurate, and where they don't match up to God's truth, I have leaks in my boat, and we all have them. And you know what happens when you have a leak in your boat, right? You get water in the boat. And so when we have these leaks, then we spend time bailing water out of the boat because the water's coming in. And leaks aren't so bad when you're in calm water because you have time to bail. But when life gets really out of hand, I mean, when you're in the storms of life and the big waves are coming and the wind is blowing and it's raining and water's pouring into your boat, the last thing you have to do is bail because you're too busy holding on to the boat hoping you don't get thrown out of the boat. We all have leaks in our boat by beliefs that are not to God's truth. But the keel of our boat, the keel of our faith is certain. Okay? And the more leaks that I have, the more beliefs that I have that are not consistent with God's word, the more water comes in my boat. And it can be very scary when the weather gets really bad. <clears throat> now, something I want you to understand about the keel, though, is this. In the keel of my boat, when I was born, I had a will. And my will was inconsistent with God's loving and perfect will. In fact, it was diametrically opposed to. In fact, I was an enemy of God. And this last week, we play about C.S. Lewis and, and the way he described it is I just want to be left alone. I just want God out. And that's how I was born. But God laid a keel in my life when I was baptized. And it was a big celebration, I think. I mean, I was too young to know. But the keel of my faith was established when I was baptized. Can you put the first text up there? This is something out of our little catechism that says, I believe that I cannot by my own strength or reason believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept in me in the true faith. This is the third article to the Apostles' Creed, which we just read. And, and I hope you see an incredible freedom here in the acknowledgement that even though I was born this enemy of God and I want God to leave me alone, God has still worked in my life. I was a baby when I was baptized. I mean, I didn't ask to be baptized. I was a passive recipient of this incredible gift by the promise of God where it says, in the waters of baptism, what? I would be forgiven my sins and I would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you've been baptized, you have the same promise. The keel of your faith is certain. Now, like me, you might have some leaks in your boat. You might have some incongruous beliefs, but the keel of your faith is certain. One of the challenges we run into, though, we have this incredible freedom that God has worked in our lives. We have a tendency to make a little bit of a mistake here. One of those places where water leaks in. This is a really big leak in my boat if I have this going on. Can you put the next text up? The gospel itself, without the assistance of man, kindles the faith it demands. So what we're saying here is that I didn't contribute to my and I have to be careful that I don't turn my faith into a work of righteousness 
and eliminate what Jesus did for me in his life and his death and his resurrection. To be really careful with that. Because I can no more do that than it says here, such as love and obedience, etc., but a product of the promise. That's from a book called The Law and the Gospel by Francis Pieper. And the point is that, yes, as the gospel, as Jesus' life and death and resurrection have moved in my life, it's changed me. But I have to be careful that I don't turn love or my obedience or even faith into the basis which makes me right with God. It's what Jesus has done for me. Even in Ephesians we say we are saved by grace through faith. It's grace. It's God's movement. Independent of me. I didn't contribute to it. I didn't help with my baptism. I didn't put water on myself. The promise wasn't even mine at that time. It was my family that moved. And it's the same promise that moved me to baptize my son and my grandson and my daughter-in-law. 2 Timothy 2.13 reads, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And this is an important text for me because some, some really good, well-intended Christians who I know I will see in heaven when my boat was full of water and I'm being tossed around like crazy, you know what they say to me? You just need to have faith. And they might as well say, you, you just need to fly because I can't get myself. And so if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And what I hope you're hearing right now is that this faith, this keel that's been established in your life should give you some security and you can relax. You can take a deep breath. Because the, the keel is certain because God has moved that in your life. And it's this basis that I want to look at the Lazarus story because John writes this when he's about 80 or 90 years old and he's talking about experiences he had with a real Jesus when he's in his 20s. But the audience he's writing to is very much like you. It's people who are believers. They already had the keel of faith. Let's look at John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with his anointment, ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And I just want to look at this part of the text because it's laying the story down for us, right? Lazarus is sick. His sisters send a message to Jesus and say, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And there's a lot we can see here. And the first thing we can see is that the sisters send this message to Jesus and they're completely relying on Jesus' love for Lazarus. They don't say, Lazarus loves you and he really needs to see you. They have thrown themselves at the mercy of Jesus and said, you love him, and we're trusting that. So there's a confession of faith here. You can see some of the keel here. Now, when we say love, English love is kind of an inadequate word, right? I love Oreos. I love my family. I love you guys. I love Texas A&M. Raise your hand if you think I love them all the same, right? It's different words, different applications, right? I mean, everybody knows I really love Oreos. I mean, I love my family, but, and I love you guys, but I love my family differently, and, but I really love Oreos. So in the Greek, when we see this word love, it could have one of kind of four different meanings. One is agape, 
which is the unconditional love that has for us. Another one is storage, which is love of family, like I do have for my family and my parents and my son and other blood relatives. Another one is eros, which is where we get the word erotica from. And that's kind of a negative connotation word because it's more of that physical, passionate kind of thing that maybe is involved in your marriages. But the fourth kind is where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And it describes an affectionate friendship. And this is that affectionate friendship. Jesus has an affectionate friendship towards Lazarus. It's the kind of friendship and love that I hope you have with at least one person in your life. It's that person who knows all your proclivities and idiosyncrasies and still wants to be around you. And, and when you do those weird things, oh, that's just Dave being Dave. It's that person who, on those, when you're having a bad day, they happen to call you. You know, it's a w really weird thing, and then you, they pick up your day. It's a person who, if you're really in trouble, they, you call them because you know they'll come. It's that person you can really rely upon, right? That's the kind of relationship that's described here between Lazarus and Jesus. But understand, this is how Jesus sees Lazarus. It doesn't tell us how Lazarus sees Jesus, but it says, Jesus says, this is my friend who I have an affectionate friendship for. And when he would sit around, he'd talk about Lazarus, he'd say, my best friend Lazarus. And guess what? Jesus says the same thing today about you. In fact, we could find the Bible says, I call you my friends. I have a loving, affectionate friendship to you. Let's look at John eleven four. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So we have this weird deal where Jesus makes a statement of fact. But he doesn't exactly say why. He just states a purpose. And I think it's important to pause for a minute and look at these two questions of why and purpose. Because when I'm in my boat, and the boat is full of water, and I'm being tossed around, and all I can do to hang on, what's the first thing I naturally say? Why, God? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this to occur? And I go to this why question. And essentially what I'm saying is, help me understand you, God. Now, I want you to think about this. Let's imagine that if we could, and we can't, but if we could take everything that God knows, and God knows everything there is to know and everything there isn't to know, but if we could take everything God knows and we could put it in this circle, this is everything that God knows. We can't do that because God knows so much, but if we could, we could put it in this circle, and then we're going to take the cumulative brain power of all of us and all that we know about everything there is to know and not know, and we're going to shade in this circle. How much do you think we would shade in? Maybe like a, a, a pinhead? Maybe not a dot we couldn't even see? But yet, when I'm saying, why, God, help me understand, I'm asking the God of eternity, the God who knows everything, to help me understand him. It's kind of a foolishness on my part, right? However, I can come to understand God's purpose for the circumstances in my life. By the word of God, I begin to see God's purpose for what's occurring in my world. Not the why of it, not that I can understand it. Matter of fact, let's look at Proverbs 3.5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Do you see what it says about understanding? 
but asking God the why of it? And you say, well, yeah, but it says trust. And you said before that trust isn't something that I do on my own. That's the piece. That the trust that I have, the trust that's working in me is God's Holy Spirit through the Word of God giving me trust so I can relax. I don't need to understand all the whys. There was another case where Jesus said a similar type thing in terms of purpose. I don't know if you remember the story. Ironically, the, the first time I ever gave a message here was this story. When Jesus and his friends are walking along and they see a blind man and they say, Jesus, what must this man or his parents have done to be born blind? And they're looking for the why and the cause and effect, which is natural for all of us, right? And Jesus says a very similar thing that he does in this text in John. It was neither this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so the works of God might be displayed in him. It's the same thing he's saying here. Purpose, but not why. And certainly not in a way that my brain can understand. Okay, let's look at John 11:5. Back to the story. <clears throat> now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Same thing. Jesus said, Martha and Mary are my friends. I have an affectionate friendship towards them. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Oh, my goodness. Talk about why. <laughs> if, if you're my friend and you call me and you say, hey, look, I'm really in a bad way. I really need you to come. I'm coming, right? I mean, even if I'm in Florida and you're in Houston, I'll get on a plane and I'll come here. But Jesus says, let's stay here. This is one of those why things. He's already stated purpose, but he's doing one of those things we look at and we say, why? And, and have you ever met this Jesus in your life? I, I mean, you've given the message. Jesus, I need you and I need you right now. And I know you can come and do something about this. Please come right now. And waiting, waiting, days, weeks, months, years, still waiting. I don't know about you, but when I'm in that boat full of water and I'm being tossed about the seas and I'm not seeing Jesus, it's really scary. And I'm crying out and saying, why? Why? I don't understand this. Then John eleven seventeen, and we skip down to, I skipped a few verses here, but we're getting back to the story, the main part. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. So to make matters a little more confusing is the realization that all this while, I'm crying out to Jesus, and he's two miles away. There's a group of ladies, uh, Michelle and my mom, and, and sometimes some other ladies at Memorial Park. We can walk three miles in about 30 to 40 minutes. And Jesus is two miles away. He's 33 years old. He can run there in 10. But he doesn't. Because he has a purpose in what is occurring in the circumstances of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Now, he hasn't told them what that is, but he has told them that's a there is purpose. Let's look at John eleven nineteen. And many Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Now there's a little nuance here. 
Mary, uh, sorry, Martha goes alone. So imagine if a group of people are sitting around and been grieving for four days, and they sent this message to Jesus and what have you. If someone had walked in, a messenger of Jesus, and said, Jesus is coming, can you imagine what would have happened? Everybody would have ran over there, right? But we can tell by here the fact that Mary went on her own, that Jesus sent a messenger, and instead of walking into the group and saying, Jesus is coming, he goes to Martha and he says, Jesus wants to talk to you. He's waiting for you. And so she kind of sneaks out the back door and she leaves her sister behind. Now, I know some of you are saying, if you knew my sister, you'd leave her behind too. But that's not this, okay? Jesus gives her a personal invitation, right? And exclusively to her. He wants to talk to her. John 11, verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now we look at this and we kind of say, oh, see, there it is. There's the why. She's kind of blaming Jesus, right? That's not what's occurring here. What's occurring here, and there's no accusation against Jesus, there's no reproach on Jesus, there's nothing negative about Jesus. What's happening here is she's making a confession. She is telling Jesus about her, the keel of her faith. She's expressing this deep sorrow and extreme regret because she believes that had Jesus been there, the outcome would have been different. John eleven twenty two. Even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So there Mary, uh, Martha says it. Even now I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. This is further evidence that she's not accusing Jesus for what happened to her brother. She's further confessing into him. She's confessing her belief that had Jesus been there, something would have been different. But she's also confessing, remember the message? But when Jesus heard this earlier in the story, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Martha is expressing a hopeful expectation in Jesus. Whatever you ask, God will answer you. And I'm not even suggesting what you're going to ask God. But I trust that if you ask God, he answers you and he'll give you what you want. And you promise me that you're going to do something here. That this is a different story than what I'm looking at. However, she's confessing the keel of faith, but she's still full of a boat of water and being tossed about. Because there is an adequate and an inaccurate part of what she is believing. When she says, I know that, uh, sorry, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. That sounds right, right? It sounds good. The problem is that Martha has made Jesus something less than God. She said, you, you know, you're a prophet. You know, you're a really good guy. You're, you're something, you're a tool of God. You're an instrument of God. You're something that moves when God tells you to, to move. In fact, you don't really move on your own power. It's only when God does. And she's relegated Jesus to something less than God. And to be clear, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son have different roles, but it's one God. 
And so do you see the inaccuracy of what she's saying? She has relegated God to, sorry, Jesus to something less than God. And maybe we do that too, right? Jesus is the lesser part of God. He's not God the Father and he's not God the Holy Spirit. He's just the lesser part. He's kind of God. And we have this kind of misunderstanding of who Jesus is. So, Jesus makes a statement back to her in response to, even now I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. He says, your brother will rise again. Jesus makes this weird statement of truth to what Mary's saying, I, I trust you, and he gives her a statement of truth. In this statement of truth, he's beginning to expose this inadequate and inaccurate belief that Martha has about him. And he starts with his truth, and it's this little piece of truth that he's going to build the conversation to expose her. Inadequate, inaccurate. What, what is really happening is, is Jesus is revising Martha's estimate of Jesus and who he is. In verse 24, Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Again, Martha confesses, I agree with you, Jesus. I'm right there with you. I got it. But she's still underestimating Jesus and her beliefs of who he is. And when we underestimate our belief of Jesus and we're inadequate and inaccurate in our belief of Jesus, Guess what happens? I have a big leak in my boat. And a lot of water comes in. And then the seas get rough. And then I'm back to where, please explain. Why? It is very normal and it's reasonable. I'm a person of reasonable intelligence, average intelligence. And if you put me in a boat that's sinking, I'm probably going to cry out, please explain. <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought we had a better relationship than this. I thought you came when I asked you to. So then Jesus go, goes on to respond to her in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Let's just leave it there for a second. Now Jesus is really getting to the heart of the matter. See the I am? For in our language, it looks like a pronoun and an adverb, right? Like I am David, I'm Maggie, and et cetera. This is more than that. Jesus is, is describing here, I am, in the same way that God was described to Moses. I think I have uh, maybe a slide from Exodus 3, verse 13. Do I have that one? Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This I am is reference to God's name of Yahweh. Now, go back a little bit, give you a little history lesson here. Go back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1, 1 through Genesis 2, 4, God is referred to as Elohim. 
Elohim is a plural, and it refers to the Trinity, and it's a title. Now, after verse Genesis 2, verse 4, what happens? God creates man. God doesn't have a relationship with a man. God has a relationship with a who? Sorry, God doesn't have a relationship with a title. He has a relationship. Man doesn't have a relationship with a title. Man with a name. And that name is Yahweh. And so we see Yahweh revealed to us in Genesis 2 as man is being made. And here, I am as Yahweh. Yahweh, when we talk about the second commandment, it says, you shall not take the norm of the Lord thy God in vain. It's Yahweh that we're talking about. Such a holy and such a sacred and such a complete name that the Jews wouldn't even try to say it. Because the consequences of saying it wrong without the right reverence and what have you was being stoned to death. So this is for Jews, for Martha, I am is a very personal name and a very big name. It's not just God. Now there are seven times in the book of John when Jesus referenced I am, Yahweh. One of my favorites is John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And I know that one because that's my confirmation verse. Jesus goes on to say, I am the resurrection and the life. He's connecting resurrection and life to Yahweh. And Yahweh is the giver of all life. And apart from Yahweh, there is no life. All things exist, were created by Yahweh. All things visible, invisible, Yahweh created. There is nothing apart from Yahweh. But be careful, don't separate resurrection and life. Don't think that one came before the other or that one produces the other. Because what Jesus is telling Martha is that life and resurrection are one and the same as I am one because they are in me. And I, Yahweh, am here for you now. I have come to you. I am the resurrection and the life. And when Jesus says this, he's patching up the hole that has so much water coming in her boat. He's fixing it. And matter of fact, in a Jesus kind of way that only he can do, water starts leaving the boat. Because Jesus, Yahweh, by the way, Jesus means Yahweh Savior. It's the Greek form of Joshua, which means Yahweh the Savior. Because Jesus is, in an efficient, friendly way, concerned about Martha's heart. More than the circumstances. He wants her to not be scared not be tossed about by the wind and the waves in a boat full of water. He wants her to be secure in him. And he knows that he has to come to her and give her that security. And he does it on a personal way, an intimate way, a one-on-one way, in a way that drives out all the sorrow and the hurt and the pain. He goes on to say, he who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who believes in me will, li- will never die. And she makes it e- Jesus makes it even more personal because now he addresses the real issue. 
the circumstances. He who believes in me will never die. What had just happened to Lazarus? He had died. What is Jesus telling her? He's not dead. Now, again, life and resurrection, not one before the other. It's one and the same in Jesus. One doesn't precede the other. They're one and the same in Jesus. And that's what he's telling her. Your brother Lazarus, he's alive. And it's not some future event. It's not something that happens later, right now. And the moment that Lazarus died, he was alive in Jesus, Yahweh. And not only was he alive, death didn't touch him, didn't affect him, and no way bothered him. Was not even a part of the process for him. He's giving Martha a security and a safety and a truth of who he is about her brother. But then he even makes it personal for her. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he's saying, Martha, not only is your brother not dead, you're alive and you're never going to die either. Can you see the personal nature in which he has approached her, not resolving the circumstances, but helping her to feel safe again? To remind her that the keel of faith that he has established is strong and good and will not fail her even though a boat may have some water in it, even though the seas are rough. At the end of John eleven twenty five, Jesus says, do you believe? And then you say, well, there, look, there's one of those cases where you got to do something, right? That's not this. See, if you think that Jesus didn't know whether Martha had the keel of faith or not, that would be errant. If you think that Jesus doesn't know everything that's in our hearts and our minds, that would be errant. He's not questioning whether she has faith or not. He's not wondering if it's a coin toss of whether she's going to say, yes, I have faith or no, I don't. He knows that the keel of faith is there because he established it. What he's saying to her, and this phrase doesn't really work out this way, but what he's saying is, now you really believe. I already know you have faith, but now you really believe because I have revealed myself to you. Martha responds to him. I'm not sure if I have this in the, in the screen, but she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes to, into the world. And now we break this down and, and several things happen. She does refer to him as his title as Christ, the Son of God, and he who comes into the world. And she's saying, Yeah, I do really believe. You are Yahweh. And I am safe again. Circumstances haven't changed. But I'm safe with you again, where I belong. Not that about in me. It's another confession. And I hope you could see along the way there was a progression in her confession of agreement with Jesus. She had some inadequacies and inaccuracies. But Jesus is caring for her loving her, eliminating those inadequacies and inaccuracies, and in so doing, strengthening her faith, reminding her of how strong that keel is that he had implanted in her by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And there's a couple of things that I, that I hope you are hearing this morning. Number one, connection to Yahweh comes from the faith 
that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, has created in us. And remember in the story he said, this is not the end of death, but the Son would be glorified? He was most certainly glorified when he raised Lazarus from the dead, but he was also glorified when Mom confesses her faith. And when you and I confess our faith, God is glorified. Our faith is not negotiable. And even though our faith may have inadequate and accurate beliefs, because we all have leaks in our boat, the keel of our faith is firmly established by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. So relax. But I also want you to notice, as I, as I alluded to before, notice how Jesus' concern is Martha's heart more than the circumstances. He's not uncaring circumstances, but first, before we can deal with the circumstances, I want Martha to know she's safe with me. I want that certainty for her to have that. And so maybe this morning, if you're struggling with something and you're not understanding and you don't know the why of it and you've been waiting a long time, maybe Jesus is saying, let's talk first. I want you to know the safety and security that I can give you before we talk about stuff that's going out there because I care about you more than the circumstances. Maybe that's going on in your life. But I also want to say to the rest of us, if you're on the other side of one of those rough seas with a boat of water, and you come across somebody whose boat is full of water, and they're being tossed around, maybe it's a good idea, instead of telling them, just try harder, you need to have faith, we could tell them, let me tell you how Jesus has worked in my life when I was going through this. And maybe we can love them and care about them in such a way that we can remind them, you're safe with me. I know it's scary out there, but you're safe with me. Maybe we can approach it that way and show compassion instead of drilling another hole in their boat by saying, just try harder. And the last thing I want to say is this, that though we don't understand the whys of life, what we're certain on is that the singular purpose of everything that occurs in this world is that God will be glorified. And when God is glorified, it serves to our good because he loves us. He's not trying to hurt us. He doesn't want to see us in a leaky boat full of water. In fact, he's working in our lives to eliminate the But sometimes that hurts. And sometimes it's scary. And that's okay because you still have the keel of faith that was established in you. And you can trust that because God is working that in you. So relax. Okay? All right, let's close in a prayer. Holy and gracious God, we do just give you thanks and praise that when we were helpless and our boats were full of water and we were your enemies and we were far away from you, Matter of fact, we didn't even care about you. That you came for us. And you did live the life that we could never live. Perfectly fulfilling all the requirements and religious and ceremonial laws. And civil laws. You went to the cross and you took our place on the cross and you bore the consequences for all the ways that we have gone astray. And then you rose from the dead. And you conquered the devil once and for all, showing us that life and resurrection are one, 
and the same in you. And that whether it be us or someone we love, they are alive in you, now and always. And some of those people we miss, that we want to talk someday soon, we will forever be together with them and be able to talk and tell of all the great things that you have done in our lives when you were glorified. So we thank you, Lord, that you've loved us so much that you call us your children and that even when we steer our boats in the wrong direction, it doesn't fail us and you redirect us back into your path. So we thank you. We thank you for your love. And we worship you and praise you alone for you alone are God. Pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.